0: Hey, we love Burger King Grilled Dogs. They're made with 100% beef, and they're 100%. Mm. They're so good, they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog.
1: Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want.
0: This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the Dollar Grilled Dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. This is Daniel Leroux, your host and so happy to have you with us. This episode is with Jared Weiss who covers the Boston Celtics for CLNS Radio and Celtics Blog and he and I have known each other for a few years now and I wanted to talk about the Celtics because they've been a part of a flurry of different moves from trading Rajon Rondo to trading almost all of the guys they traded Rajon Rondo for and i was interested in how that is played in boston because as somebody who isn't in that area i do find it very interesting to see how that is played there plus all the other storylines with brad stevens and everything else and so we started there i think that runs about half an hour and then we get on to broader nba topics talk about the warriors a little while and some of the other things that he's been noticing around the league the whole conversation runs a little over an hour so hope you enjoy it thanks so much for coming on
1: uh it's always fun to be
0: here it's pretty funny because I think it was about a month ago I had talked initially with you about trying to come on to talk about what looked like it was going to be a Celtics trade, and now we have plenty of trades to talk about. So as somebody who's, who's been around this team so much, do you want to talk about how the last month has been?
1: it's crazy. I mean, so when when I cover the team and my nightly show, we usually do the first episode is like the first part of our episode is breaking down the game that happened and the second part is kind of looking at the more macro level uh stuff that's going on, and we're we're like, we're kind of doing the same topic a lot of the time but we're doing completely new material every time because the main focus has just been the new identity the Celtics but it changes so often like we've had I'm holding up in front of me this uh, this sheet that the team gave us where they broke down all the draft picks it's this really great spreadsheet it, it fills up an entire eight by eight and a half by eleven piece of paper with all the draft picks they have from 2015 to 2020. It, it's unbelievable they could have 11 first rounders uh, in the near future I mean it's unbelievable what they're doing but on the court they have like such a major identity crisis offensively they like they're trying to figure it out game by game they don't have a go-to guy right now. Jared Sollinger should be their go-to guy, but I've asked Jared Sollinger about five times over the last two weeks if he wants to be the go-to guy on this team. And he's like, no, we just got to have a system. I don't want to be that guy. I, I think the guys that are now leaders on this team that were really the followers before but now are being forced to be leaders, they're trying to really emphasize that they want to focus on the team system and building the system and all that. But if that's fine if they want to develop this team, which is what they should be doing. But as far as winning games right now, they really need a guy that can take them through a quarter. and. Right now, that's Evan Turner on occasions. That's Jared Solinger on occasions. But it's, as you can imagine, saying that Evan Turner and Jared Solinger are the guys that are going to carry your team is not really a recipe for success. And that's why they don't really win anymore. And they're three and seven in the last 10 games. And it's not really, it's not going to get any better anytime soon.
0: Yeah, and, and what's so kind of compelling for me with this Celtics team, and it's, it's hilarious how that has changed despite all the turnover, or that hasn't changed despite all the turnovers. You and I talked before the season, and the question that I had for you was, who on this team do you see us being around long term? And from what I remember, there was a lot of uncertainty there. There was a lot of, you know, hopefully it's Marcus Smart, hopefully it's Jared Sollinger, but we don't really know. How do you feel on that now? We're about halfway through the season. Who do you think is you would expect to be on this team let's say let's say three years from right now.
1: Oh, three years from now. Uh, Smart's the only one that I would lock in as thing three years from now. And James Young too. I mean, James Young has shown a few flashes of brilliance here. I've been—I was pushing really hard for him to get some playing time, and thankfully, the trades finally opened that up for him. He's getting some run, and he looks pretty good when he's out there. I mean, the guy isn't ready to be in the rotation yet, but just to give him ten minutes a night, he's pretty valuable. But I, I mean, Solinger is definitely not. He's not progressing in a straight uphill level on the. If you look at the line chart of his progression, I mean he he was a guy that the leap from year one to year two was really good. I mean he he went from in year one where he was kind of a little bit stuck in the mud and all that to year two. It's kind of like a lot of second year players where they figure out how they can start to kind of be themselves in the league and show their personalities both in the way that they play and then who they actually are as a person. And Solinger finally did that last year. He started moving with the ball more. He started shooting the ball. And... This year, he's – I mean the big difference I would say was last year he was hucking up threes and he shot like 26%. And people are criticizing that, which I didn't understand because the Celtics weren't going to win any games last year. So you might as well have all these guys miss all the shots that you want them to make in the future. And sure enough, it works because now Jared Solinger is a much better three-point shooter. And he is right now probably the best three-point shooter on this team. I mean, The numbers technically don't bear that out. But if you look at the guys that are taking the shots, he's hitting them probably a little bit more than – Anybody else in this team, and obviously that kind of explains what their biggest weakness is, which is outside shooting. But Solinger, he he hasn't really opened up his post game a lot yet, and that's kind of the next evolution for him. Is we know he has a good post game; he's got a solid back to the basket game. He can face up guys from fifteen feet. But he just hasn't really gone to it that consistently yet. He's not a guy that you can put him to work on the block. I remember there was a game where Al Jefferson came to town, and I thought that would be a chance for Solinger to really kind of go at Al Jefferson and show off some of his post skills. And Jefferson just ripped him to pieces, and he he didn't really have much of an answer for it. So that's that, that's a one way in which Sol, Solinger kind of needs to grow. And then the other way is just kind of he needs to he needs to get in better shape, and he needs to be. A better defender. I mean, he needs to try harder on defense. You know, he was he was criticizing the team as a whole for not playing hard on defense in a game pretty recently, and then I went back to the tape and saw that he was the guy that was really blowing it defensively more than anybody else. So I wouldn't necessarily call it that that being calling a spade a spade or the pot calling the kettle black, but it's it's still an area of concern where you have a guy calling out the team for something that he isn't doing either. The team is des- in desperate need of someone that can lead by example and not just by words. And they don't really have that at all right now.
0: Do you feel more comfortable with Sullinger playing not as the rim protector because it seems to me that when you when you play either Sullinger or Linux in the ideal circumstance, obviously they're years from that. They have 11 picks to try to get it, but Do you see both of them as being better with a rim protector as opposed to trying to eventually become that guy?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, Jared Solinger playing the five, which doesn't really happen that much right now, thankfully. But that's kind of like when Glenn Davis uh, was playing the five for this team. He was next to Kevin Garnett, which made it work. And Big Baby, even though he can't really protect the rim necessarily, he's a good on-ball defender, and he works his butt off on defense, despite the criticisms that I think were unfair to him. And he's strong, and he rebounds, and he boxes out. And Solinger does most of those things, too. Solinger, when he's guarding the rim... He unfortunately isn't playing next to Kevin Garnett, so he doesn't get the kind of support that Big Baby got that allowed him to be moderately successful in that endeavor. He's playing next to Tyler Zeller, who has definitely made strides as a a defensive center. I know uh, my friend Kevin O'Connor from Celtics Blog wrote a really good piece breaking that down. If if you're not reading Kevin O'Connor, if you want to know about how the Celtics are playing, he's the guy to go to at Celtics Blog. But they don't have the support. They just—they don't have like defensive anchors on this team right now. You, your defensive anchor doesn't always have to be the guy under the rim or guarding LeBron or stuff like that. You just—you need one good defensive player that can allow the other defenders to kind of stay in their space and not need to be constantly recovering and stuff like that. And Kevin Garnett allowed this team when they had other bad defenders on the floor. He allowed them to still be successful because he did so much himself that it took the pressure off of the other guys. And right now, this team doesn't really have that. I know Avery Bradley, his defense hasn't been hasn't really stood out the way it has in the past, but he's still been pretty solid, although there have been a few games recently, most notably right before we started talking the Chicago Bulls game where Derrick Rose had the best game that I've seen him play this year, although I you know he's had a few other really good games. But you know Bradley isn't really carrying the team defensively like he used to. And while they're not a bad defensive team, they're not really a good one either. And it's really, I think their best defensive nights tend to come against more mediocre teams, really. So the stats probably show that they're a a decent, uh, they have a pretty decent defensive rating. But I think that's probably that just their schedule has been kind of serving towards that number.
0: And what you're saying there makes a lot of sense as somebody who has background with the Warriors, because what happened with them is there were a lot of players that had that negative defensive perception around the league. And as soon as they got Andrew Bogut and he really got installed, then... Those became less of issues because what a rim protector does is they, they don't prevent mistakes from being made, they just make them less important. And yeah. so they reduce that and so it allows the mistakes that happen, like that's one of the really interesting things that people have been trying to figure out with Anthony Davis defensively is that he doesn't prevent their terrible perimeter defenders and preventing guys from coming in the lane the hope is that he they make less shots and they're more scared when they do it and so I think that you need that, and then ideally you have a perimeter defender who can slow down the other team's best player. If you have those two, I think you're all right. And hopefully Avery Bradley can be that guy. Hopefully Marcus Smart can be that guy. But the Celtics have this fascinating dynamic because the lack of, I guess you'd call it the lack of continuity, but at the same time, it's pretty, is it still acknowledged in the Boston community that Brad Stevens seems like a really good coach?
1: Well, that's actually been a little bit at risk, that reputation, and blame Brad because Brad has been publicly whipping himself in the back basically lately. He he had a press conference where they had a pretty ugly loss where they were in contention for a little while and then they just completely collapsed. And Brad actually went on stage uh, and said that I'm doing a bad job. And he was saying it very, very deliberately. It was very, he was very emphatic in the way that he was saying it. It was remarkable to see it. And, you know, Stevens, he's so honest. It's amazing. And I think he needs to hang out with Doc and Pop a little bit more to kind of learn how to manipulate the media. It's great for me. It's great for any of us that are covering the team because we get amazing quotes from him that are very detailed and very game-specific and very analytical and all that kind of stuff. Um, And incredibly honest. And I love it. But... I frankly, if I'm in Brad's if I'm in Brad's shoes, I don't think I would be so forthcoming because he's kind of setting himself up here a little bit. Now, he probably has a vote of confidence from Danny Ainge, who basically told him, Brad, we're gonna screw this team up for a while now you're golden. Don't worry. We're going to pay you. We're going to keep you because we know that once this team gets itself together, you're going to turn them into a great team. And of course, David Blatt is kind of going through something similar right now where he's he has this team that's been put together that while their talent is out of this world, they're cr- clearly a discombobulated roster right now. And he's trying to figure out how to make it work. And I think Mike Miller just today, uh, we're recording on a Sunday, came out and said that, yeah, it's not really working right now. and It's not showing up on the stat sheet, but Blatt's concepts are still genius and we still believe in them. And I think that's the same thing with Brad Stevens, where Brad Stevens' his concepts are still very, very forward-thinking. I mean, it seems like philosophy is kind of a big deal with him, not in the way that the Zen master works, but just a matter of mental health and all that being a major part of the game and all, all that, and strategy as much as just trying to be a good like a good basketball team, but trying to have the right mindset and all that kind of stuff. That's something that Stevens seems to emphasize very heavily it has been the major theme of this team so far. It's not about execution as much as believing, leaving in yourself and all that kind of fluffy stuff. But Stevens takes that fluffy stuff and he tries to make it legitimate and it's not really working on a team where guys are you know, guys are getting the pink slip every other day and you're constantly rotating in new guys that haven't had the time to really develop it. But once stability is put into this roster, I think that's when you're gonna see the results come.
0: Yeah, one thing that actually is kind of nice about bouncing in on teams at various points, you know, being kind of being somebody with national interest who's based in a specific area is that I think you get a pretty good sense of which teams are well-coached and which teams are not, and the most interesting one to me with that this year is the Sacramento Kings. I thought when Mike Malone was there, they were really well-coached, and I haven't watched enough of them after to see if Ty Corbin's doing the same thing, but when I watch the Celtics in person or when I watch them on TV, they seem like a well-coached team. Their problems are just that their talent doesn't make much sense, and they're just not as good as a lot of other NBA teams. To me, that means that you have a foundation there, and as long as he doesn't lose the locker room, which from what I can tell, it doesn't appear to be much of a problem, that you just need to find the most important part of this is you need to find the guys who you want to indoctrinate and get them in, and so those are the standard bearers moving forward. And some of that's luck, you know, some of that's just getting in the right place at the right time. The Warriors said that with Stephen Curry, and part of it is identifying people and coalescing your assets into a smaller number of people and saying, these are our guys.
1: Well, you know, the biggest thing when it comes to the coach is whether or not the players want him there. And when Sacramento was in town, I talked to some people and they were telling me that the Kings players were furious that Mike Malone got fired. They did not want him to go, that it was really just management was trying to angle him out pretty much from the start, just because they wanted they wanted the an analytics guy that Alessandro could really control. And I wouldn't be surprised if Mullen uh, ends up taking over there next year. But The players have responded as poorly as imaginable to the Malone firing, and the Celtics are in a similar situation there where they're with this coach that they really, really like, and it doesn't seem like he's able to get the most out of them yet. But I, I honestly, like I said before, I wouldn't put that on Stevens right now. I think Stevens is just what he's working with. It's just he's just he's kind of working with nothing right now. He's got a couple. It's like playing poker with like a pair of threes. It's like you're trying to make something happen with it, but you just don't really have much. And, you know, Stevens, if you're going to judge him, I would judge him based on one, how the players are continuously supporting him. I don't think there's been any wavering in the support that he's gotten from his team. Even Brandon Bass, who is one of the most professional people I've ever interacted with in my life, he, even he kind of started to complain a little bit about the lack of playing time that he was getting, but he was still incredibly respectful to his coach. And, you know, there's, I mean, Brandon Bass is probably the last guy that would criticize his coach, but there's a lot of guys out there that if they were really pissed off about their playing time. And if they were in the middle of their prime, and they weren't getting the playing time and they were auditioning for free agency, that they would probably take it out on their coach very subtly in the in the press, but nobody's done it. And guys like Gerald Wallace, who I mean, maybe Gerald Wallace knows that his career is pretty much over, but you watch him out there and he barely can move around out there. But if you put Gerald Wallace on a playoff team, he'd probably be a valuable 10th man off the bench. But Gerald Wallace hasn't really said a peep complaining about the fact that he's been pretty much removed from the roster and is just a glorified assistant coach. And I think it speaks a lot to Stevens is incredibly upfront and honest with his players. He also, he never tells a player that he's going to play or he's not going to play. So, a lot of the time, players will play 30 minutes in the game that weren't really playing before. And we'll ask them, like, what did Stevens tell you before the game? And they'll be like, Stevens didn't say anything. I just, you know, just, you got to suit up every single day. And I think that's part of Stevens' philosophy that he wants these guys to be practicing every single day like they might get a chance to play. Because James Young, I think it was James Young was the guy, you know, James Young wasn't playing literally at all. And he kept getting sent down to the D-League, but James Young said that he kept practicing as hard as he could every single day just because he knows that he never knows when his chance is going to happen. And sure enough, it happened for him.
0: Yeah, that's that's really good to hear. I, th- I think that's definitely interesting. One of the things I thought would be a fun exercise with all this is I want to... We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but to go through the transactions that have happened and just kind of get your thoughts on it from covering the team. And so the first one that really set a lot of these chains in motion was the Rajon Rondo trade. Were you happy with the return that Boston got on that?
1: Uh, No, nobody in the world was happy with that. I mean, that that was kind of... Uh... I think I think I when I saw the trade, I just tweeted out "jaw on floor" in all caps because I could not comprehend the idea that Rajon Rondo could be dumped for a couple bench players and a late first round draft pick. And then you know, almost immediately, I realized you know what—that's actually probably the best that they were going to get in this situation. And there was so much dissecting about the history of Rondo and his value and all that kind of stuff. But when the Celtics should have traded him. And I mean, what really happened was the Celtics were going to give it a try to rebuild around him, and the ACL tear just ruined everything for that. And it's unfortunate, but it was just kind of a simple accident that really threw a wrench in everything. And they were hoping that Rondo would come back this year and he would be a world beater and be the guy that they always wanted him to be. And that just didn't happen. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I, I would say it's as much the team around him as Rondo himself. But Rondo, I called on him for a long time to be an aggressive score, be an aggressive leader on the court. And while he was a wonderful passer, he still – the way he played this year, he had like a different kind of – a different mannerism to the way he was playing this year. I noticed that he, he kind of liked to stand up straighter, maybe even sitting back a little bit. And instead of attacking lanes, he would run pick and rolls and he would try to sit back in the lane and then fire in a rifle pass. And it was getting picked off all the time. There were lots of deflections. He was turning it over pretty much more than any compared to the amount of uh, compared to his usage rate. He was turning it over just as probably more than any other year in his career. And Rondo just didn't look like he was the guy that they wanted him to be anymore. And the rest of the league saw that. And the market responded pretty, pretty much as you could imagine. So. You know, they they took Brandon Wright, they turned him into a potential first-round pick, but most likely two second-round picks. They traded Nelson and then bought out Nate Robinson, so they basically cut Nelson. And they still have Jay Crowder, who is a really solid bench player, who right now is starting for this team, and he's playing pretty solidly. He works his butt off defensively, he's inconsistent offensively, but he contributes sometimes. Uh, And then they got that first-round pick that's not going to be worth too much, but they can use it as a trade package piece sometime in the next two years. But you look at that and you think about basically two guys that you dumped for second-round picks and then a solid bench player for a guy that was a top-ten player in the league just a couple years ago. But Rondo's career has taken a major, major uh, drop. and. We'll see if he can get it back together in Dallas. I mean, he's looked decent in Dallas so far. I know he's really improved the way they're playing on the defensive side, which is hilarious considering all the talk about how he hasn't been trying defensively for the Celtics for a while. But, you know, Rondo, he's a guy that thrives on the big stage and – it kind of looks like he's a guy that only really gives it his all on the big stage, and I think that's what really separated him from the great players in the league was that he didn't really want to. He wasn't really committed to being a great player every single night, and especially when you're the point guard and the ball's in your hand ninety percent of the time, that's going to destroy your team, and that's what happened with Rondo. And I think everybody in, I would assume, everyone in the front office is a little bit disappointed that it just he didn't really he didn't really reach the heights that they wanted him to reach on an individual level but you know he can still go to dallas and win 3 nba titles and looked at as one of the great point guards ever i mean it, it can all change for him but the difference was he had the chance to be the guy and he, he, it 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 was pretty apparent that he just isn't the guy
0: yeah, I think that the what the Rondo story kind of hinges with the ACL injury because that was the chance to really see it and also to rehabilitate his value around the league, but the the small component of that trade that I really liked for the Celtics is that they put playoff protection on the pick for this year. So in in effect what they were betting on was that okay, in one of the next couple of years, they'll they'll fall off and if they they fall off, they won't ever have one of the 5-6 worst records. I think that's pretty well agreed to. They have a really good team. So they're making that bet and by securing it securing the playoff part this year said okay well we're not making that bet for this year we I think they expected they're going to make the playoffs this year which they probably will and then so they gave themselves a much better chance of getting good pick it still isn't a great chance but it's better and when you're Boston and you're trying to get as many assets as you can, that kind of small tweak could make a huge difference.
1: Well, I mean, with with the Celtics, they've got so many of their draft picks that are, or their incoming pick protections that are going to divert to second rounders that they're basically just going to be picking up a bunch of like little players around out the back end of their roster towards the second round. And those are guys that get cut all the time because with second round picks, they're out of there in two years, a lot of the time. So they're looking at it as they've got all these first round picks that are going to be towards the end of the round. And then they've got those Brooklyn picks with the way that they're set up. They're going to be pretty high, most likely as the burning of Brooklyn continues. So they're probably looking at it as everything they acquire is probably going to get moved out cuz they've got their picks and they got the Brooklyn picks to be kind of the guys that they really build their roster with. So when I see all these draft picks they're picking up, I'm looking at those as most likely things that they're trying to use to trade off in the future because the amount of draft picks they have, they're not going to use the majority of those cuz they like you can't you only get 15 guys on your roster. And there's no point of having 15 first-round picks. It's more valuable to trade those picks. And Danny Ainge was saying recently in in an impromptu press conference after the Jeff Green trade that draft picks are more valuable as assets before the pick because you can trade it to any team and they can do whatever they want with them. So his philosophy is starting to kind of reveal itself is that He doesn't want players to trade. He wants picks to trade because teams want the flexibility of getting whoever they want with that draft pick rather than being locked in trying to make a player fit into the team. Because if you're looking looking at it from like a risk management perspective, when you have a draft pick, every single team in the league wants that draft pick. It's not a single team in the league that couldn't use that pick. Well, if you have Jeff Green, there is only about four teams in the league really that could use Jeff Green. So, Angels looking at just just utilizing as much flexibility as humanly possible. So, for him, he'd rather have than like a maybe like a six man. He would rather have a late first round pick just because there are more teams in the league that would want that pick than a good six man.
0: Yeah, I definitely think that there's there's a logic to that, and we know that you can combine picks to move up. You can look at something like what Chicago did to get Doug McDermott, and you can argue about whether that was good or not. And the other component of that is the Celtics have had a lot of trouble drafting late in the first round, so maybe thinking about it as combining assets is a better use of their drafting talent.
1: The thing is so the Celtics also moved up in the draft recently to take Kelly Olynyk. Now, they could have taken Giannis Antetokounmpo if they hadn't moved up or if they moved up they could have taken him instead. So it, it kind of shows the risk in making draft picks. And that's why I've traditionally been against draft picks is because you don't know while you know you can choose who you want, you're also taking a risk in that you don't know who that player is yet. And now Kelly Olynyk at the 13th pick in that draft is still looking like a pretty good pick. As inconsistent as he is, he's, he's showing that he's got a good amount of talent. But they miss everybody missed there where they didn't draft Giannis because Giannis is very clearly a top three or four pick in that draft. And it shows that while you're mitigating risk as far as who would want the picks, you're also increasing the risk of not knowing what you're getting. And Danny Ainge believes in himself and his staff enough that he'd rather have the picks, I guess. But and of course, it's all looking at a ideal trade for a superstar at some point. Maybe he wants, I don't know, maybe he wants like LaMarcus Aldridge or something like that. Who knows? Or Kevin Durant, but that's probably not going to happen. But the point being is that Ainge, I mean, Ainge is never scared of taking a risk, but I think he's scared of not being able to make a move. And with him, when he has all these draft picks, he I think he probably looks at it as he can move up in the draft whenever he wants, which is probably ideal. And he can move them to, and package for trade whenever he wants for another player as well. But Ainge just always wants to be able to make a trade. He wants to be able to blow everything up whenever he wants. And I'm not saying that in a petulant way. I'm saying is that he values the flexibility of the roster and his assets more than anything.
0: Can I mention that I'm pretty sure with the picks that they gave up for Olenek that they also could have gotten Rudy Jaber, which would have been an amazing combination for Boston?
1: I mean, they they would have been the longest team in NBA history if you put, just from a wingspan position, you put Rondo, Bradley, Green, Giannis, and Gobert on the floor together. All those guys have a wingspan of like seven feet plus. I mean, that would have been remarkable to watch.
0: Is there anybody that you – have? I don't know if you've watched much college, but is there anybody that you've sat there and gone, oh, they'd be really fun on this team?
1: Well, Jaleel Okafor, obviously. I mean uh, there's no question that the only thing that the Celtics want right now is just to get Jaleel Okafor. It's like he would be – he would solve every single problem that they have. They would have everything that they want in one package. there's a lot of centers towards the top of the draft coming up here that the Celtics want. They want a center, which is funny considering that Tyler Zeller has been fantastic for him and probably one of the best value players in the NBA right now considering the production that he's been giving them throughout most of the season and the fact that they got him for a trade exception. That that worked out pretty incredibly for them. Um, But he's, he's not incredibly consistent as far as being an effective player. He's been sitting out a lot of second halves lately because they... Like there's just, there's games where Zeller works and then there's games where he doesn't work. And of course without Rondo now, it's definitely inhibited his game, but they're looking at, you know, there's towns at Kentucky, Colley Stein at Kentucky. I don't really know a ton about Porzingis, but I know he's a guy that's probably going to be on their radar. And, um, yeah, they, of course they, they could look at another swingman too. And there's a lot of good swingman and Winslow and Johnson from Arizona, uh, the Barcelona kid too. So there's there's a lot of guys at the top of the draft that would work for them, and you know they, they could go for a swingman. James Young is nice, but he's not exactly uh, Giannis. So if they see that like a guy that they think is going to be a super athletic freak or be a great all around scorer, they'd probably go for him. But there's no question that they want that number one pick. They want Okafor. Okafor, like Embiid was before the injury last year, before he put on 50 pounds reportedly. Okafor was the dream, I'm sorry, uh, Embiid was the dream for them and Okafor is probably not quite as good, at least on paper, but he's probably pretty comparable. Okafor is definitely what they need. So I think the Celtics right now they're looking at is we just got to win the lottery this year. That's all that matters.
0: I'll give you another one. I haven't watched much of him this year. Not if they get get a really good pick, but if they fall down a little bit like they did last year. A guy that I think would be really fun on the Celtics is Mario Hazonia. And Hazonia is not getting a lot of press because he plays in Europe, and that happens a lot. But the guy that I'd compare him to is a less crazy J.R. Smith. And some people will see that in Shudder, and I understand why. But if you think about if you restarted J.R. Smith's career with his physical talent and his shooting ability a hundred times you would end up with a pretty good NBA player, I would say, at least 60 of those times.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, J.R. Smith is like an absolute nut job. So we can compare guys to J.R. Smith as far as their game is concerned and then not say that that's like a negative thing just because with J.R. Smith, it's like great score and then add the caveat of being a total nut job. And his who is the Barcelona kid. I, I didn't want to try to screw up his name and humiliate him on the real GM podcast, but he, uh, he's a good shooter. And that's something that the Celtics want really badly. They literally right now on this team, the only guy that can really take a shot for them, be like a shot maker is Marcus Thornton. And, that's really scary to say about an NBA roster when Marcus Thornton, and not Marcus Thornton of three years ago when he was averaging 18 a game for Sacramento, but Marcus Thornton that's pretty much almost on his way out of the league. And he's, and by the way, Marcus Thornton's in pretty lousy shape. And I've been really kind of, I wouldn't say surprised because I kind of expected something to be wrong with him, but. Thornton, who I do like as a player, he is in pretty lousy shape, and I'm kind of it's it's kind of noticeable. Even though he still places, he still runs his butt off while he's out there, he definitely needs to lose a lot of weight. But you know, the Celtics, they as badly as they need a center, they need a guy that's a shot maker for them. Marcus Smart is supposed to be a shot maker, but so far this year, he has barely even driven the ball into the paint. He's been almost allergic at driving to the paint. And no one's really sure why yet it might have to do with his ankle injury that he suffered really early in the season, but he's, he's shooting the ball from deep pretty decently. His, his three point shot is so much better than it was last year at Oklahoma state. So that that's pretty great, but they need a guy that can be a shot maker for them. Moutier would make sense as well. Um, and of course I say that knowing that both Bradley and smart, those are guys they can move on from. Nobody's really locked into this roster. So yeah, I mean the draft's kind of wide open for the Celtics at the top. If they're in the top five, they're going to get pre- they can pretty much pick whoever they want as far as who they uh, who fits with their team. But there's no there's no question that Okafor is kind of a step ahead on what they need and who's better than everybody else in the draft.
0: You you talked about it as a salary dump, but one of the pieces of the moves that they made that I liked the best actually was the trade with Jameer Nelson going to Nate Rob- going for Nate Robinson to Denver because. Jameer had a player option next year that was, you know, it was about three million I think, so there's a decent chance he was gonna get it and he didn't really have much utility for Boston, so they were able to get out of that without much of a commitment when it could have been not a huge albatross, but a somewhat small albatross that would have caused them some problems.
1: Yeah, I mean they—they they just want to clear everything for next year. So it was, it, yeah. It, I mean, it was a salary dump, and salary dumps a good thing. They were able to get rid of something that was going to be dead weight for them, and that worked out pretty nicely. So they didn't have to buy out the six million over two years. They just had to buy out the whatever prorated two million was left on Nate Robinson's contract. So yeah, that that was that worked out pretty well for them. And I was devastated that I didn't get to see Nate Robinson in the Celtics uniform because it would have been, one, a shot maker that they need, and two, just a really fun experience, although I've heard uh, negative things about Nate Robinson as a human being in the locker room having to work with. But the Celtics, they're doing a nice job of just getting rid of everybody, and they're looking at this roster and they're saying, you know what, there's nobody here we really want. You know, there's some of these guys that we need to win right now, but we don't really want to win right now. So... They got rid of Jeff Green. They have a future first-round pick coming. It's in 2019, most likely. So they could be a valuable pick at that point, assuming that things don't go well for Memphis in the future. I mean, Randolph's old. Gasol is... Probably still going to be around at that point if they're able to keep him and still probably be an All NBA player. And Mike Conley should still be an All Star player at that point. Jeff Green, I'm not really going to put any stock into his future. I mean, I've let my thoughts on Jeff Green be pretty widely known. I've I've been very disappointed in him as a player, but him as a fourth or fifth man on a, start, in a starting lineup is a pretty good player and it's probably the right role for him. But he was another guy that had a chance to be a twenty point machine for the Celtics on a bad team and he couldn't even fill that so. My my faith in Jeff Green to grow as a player is pretty much gone. But the Celtics, these protections, like you were alluding to earlier, it could set them up for something really great down the road. And a lot of the a lot of them are protected in the front end and the back end, so it's really just kind of middle of the draft setup. But the Memphis one though is set up so that it could be a really good pick for them if it comes in twenty nineteen, which is when it's unprotected.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's a very good point. And the other nice thing for the Celtics is that as we've talked about they have so few set pieces, so they can go pretty straight best player available for whatever they're doing. And that's also true for free agency. You know, if they're a good guy comes up, they can't be like, Oh, well you would be blocked by this guy or you would be blocking this guy. So they can just do what's best for them, hope that somebody jumps there, you know, maybe I don't know who it would be, whether it'd be Kevin Love or Hibbert or somebody, you know, hope that somebody comes up or in twenty sixteen when they're really flush with cash that they can do it then and you know, it's the whole goal is to get three guys, and so the hope would be to develop one from who you already have to get a second in the draft and to get a third either through a trade or free agency. And one of the things that I like about where Boston is is that I think while they don't have any of those guys right now, they have a lot of arrows in the quiver that could maybe do it.
1: So the restricted free agency class this year is going to bear out a little bit differently because last year you had um, you had Parsons and you had Hayward, who were two players that weren't max players yet, but they had the potential to be. And with the TV money going up and the cap going up, those deals were going to be pretty fair in a couple of years. But this year you have guys that the Celtics would obviously give an arm and a leg for. Jimmy Butler, Kawhi Leonard, Marcus Gasol. Those are all guys that are playing so well already that there's no question that they're max players. And there's going to be no qualms for those teams uh, for their own teams wanting to match there. It looks like Chicago will be able to pull off the match. It looks like San Antonio will, and of course Memphis is going to. So the Celtics can't really outbid anybody, even though they have now they have the cap space to outbid people for really great restricted free agents. They're not going to be able to do it this year. So they're really looking ahead to 2016, where the cap is going to go up even more, and they're gigantic cap figure um, or cap space which is going to be maybe as high as 50 or even 60 million in 2016 that's going to allow them to potentially do some outbidding when the max contracts go way up so I wouldn't be surprised to see 2015 uh, in the offseason be kind of a dead offseason for them and I don't think they're desperate enough to like make an offer on Tristan Thompson or something like that I don't think Kevin Love's going to hit the market I think he's probably going to wait till 2016 to hit the market And then they'll see what they can do there. But I've got enough faith in the talent that they have in Cleveland that they're going to be able to pull that off. And that team isn't going to be disbanding in two years.
0: Yeah, I I definitely agree with all that. And it's going to be a challenge for any team to to pull somebody away. But at the same time, the gigantic question mark with everything with these guys is that they're going to have a lot of options because in 2016, in particular, there are going to be a lot of teams with space, and so. The hope for Boston has to be to have somebody develop, ideally, with their own draft pick. I think that's their best chance to say, you can play with this guy. Gio. That's why Gio for is such an interesting mm-hmm. fit there, is that, hey, you can play with him as a sales pitch to somebody. Or Moutier, or Carl Towns, who I actually like a lot. And I like Willie Cauley-Stein, but I don't think Cauley-Stein's going to draw people to play with him necessarily. No. But, but so you want that guy so that when 2016 rolls around that you're in the conversation, and once you're in the conversation you have that chance, you have the history and all that. I think that you can do that, but they're going to the problem that they're going to face is it's possible that a team like the Wizards could have max space or a team like maybe, well, the Warriors probably won't if everything goes the way everybody expects, but you know... A team that already has a pretty good situation, but there are going to be so many guys that are going to be available that there's going to be an option there, and it's going to be exciting to see, but then the other component of it is just how many assets they have, so maybe they do something more like what happened with James Harden, where the other team made a mistake, he shouldn't have been on the market, and Houston was able to take advantage of that by putting together a pretty good offer that was the best offer on the table, and they got a guy who never should have been available. And you do that, and then that's your one. And I have no idea who that'll be, but I think it could happen.
1: Could be Goran Dragic. That's a guy that I wouldn't be surprised to see coming to Boston this year. And I think that'd be great if they could bring him in. But there's, yeah, you're right. There's not, there's not that one guy that looks like he could be available. I mean, the the thing is, the Harden thing happened uh, kind of under the dark in the middle of the night, where no one really saw it coming that clearly. It was kind of a surprise, especially the timing right before the season. Those trades. Those trades are always big shockers. But Drogic is probably the guy that makes sense for him to be the one that that happens to. LaMarcus Aldridge, there was some potential for that to happen. But this that team is so good that there's just no way in hell they're going to make that move because they're serious title contenders. So right now, and, and of course, DeMarcus Cousins was a guy maybe a little while ago that that could have happened with. But he's gotten so good that even despite the fact that the temper issues are still kind of – Popping up from time to time, there's just no way Sacramento's going to make that move. So I, I don't see anybody that the Celtics could be the guy, the team that like, like swoops in and makes that move. But if you compare the Harden package, the Celtics have those kind of players. They have those draft picks. There's no question about that. But they can offer up one or two good young players with a draft pick, and they can make a swoop for a big star anytime they want. There's no question they could pull that off. And you know, OKC, that James Harden trade is, is extremely... It's one of the most fascinating trades that I can remember seeing in a while. And looking back on it now, the fact that they turned Jeremy Lamb and the Deion Waiters, they pretty much ended up getting what they were hoping to get Jeremy Lamb and they got him and Deion Waiters. So you look at Deion Waiters and <clears throat> and Steve Adams now together, that's that trade worked out pretty similar to what they were expecting it to work out to. And of course, they drafted Reggie Jackson that made it look a lot better. So it worked out pretty decently for OKC. And I'm sure that allows teams to feel that they could make that similar move with the Celtics and it could work out pretty okay for them.
0: Yeah, that that's definitely sing, lingering in the background. I was thinking about two non-Celtics things that I, I was amused by. One of them is that right now the Knicks are exactly halfway through the season and they're 5-36 and and to hit their over on over-under, they would need to go 36-5. and So it's just, you know kind of where they are and everything like that. And then the other one is the possibility that the Lakers have to give up their pick this year because they're right on the fringe of it. Incidentally, Boston's a team that could totally screw the Lakers if that happened.
1: That would be pretty amazing to see. And it's really fun to see the Lakers and the Celtics make a fight for the fourth and fifth pick in the draft. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a really amazing how parody really is working in the NBA, but you know the 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 Knicks being five and thirty six, being three games, I'm sorry, three and a half games right now behind Philadelphia in the standings, and Philadelphia's roster is like one of the worst we've ever seen. It it really is an absolute testament to Carmelo Anthony as a human being and a player. I mean, Carmelo Anthony, who was left on an island for a while with this team, and then of course things have really fallen apart for him, and he's out, and now they've lost sixteen in a row. But Melo could have been in Chicago or Houston, two of the best teams in the league, and he chose to play it out in New York. And they're the worst team, one of the worst teams of all time now. I mean, that 1-2-2 winning percentage, they could break the record this year. And of course, that would be without Melo for the most part. But and Melo should shut it down. By the way, there's no point of Carmelo Anthony playing basketball in the NBA for the New York Knicks right now. But it, it's amazing how big of a mistake Carmelo Anthony made from a basketball perspective. But he did come out in an interview and say that one of the re- like I mean, he said one of the reasons, and I'm doing air quotes in my room right now. One of the reasons why he wanted to go to New York was because of the he's trying to be a know, trying to be like a millionaire now where he has culture and he's a part of new york society and he collects art and all that kind of stuff which i totally respect and understand but i if i were in his shoes as someone that likes all that kind of stuff i would have rather gone to chicago which is my second favorite city in america and have most of that stuff, most of that culture life, but still have been on a great team and win NBA championships. And of course when you become a more successful NBA champion, that allows you to kind of transcend boundaries and you know be a global superstar. So Mello I think made a terrible miscalculation there. Maybe he wanted the money. I don't think the money was that big of an issue for him. It seems like he makes plenty of money already. That uh, his, especially because if he started winning titles, he'd be making more money that way than if he got the extra 30 million from New York. But it's when I look at New York I look at the sad sad team but I really just look at the what I think is a terrible mistake that Melo made to not go to Houston or Chicago
0: and at the same time I talked about this a little bit with Nate Duncan last week the mistake that the Knicks made was that they did both the big offer and the no trade and if they had offered one or the other they still would have had the best offer on the table but they wouldn't have trapped themselves and the big issue with that that is that you know they need to convince Melo to waive his no trade so he still wields a ton of power and that is a really big challenge for them because they can't move in a different direction unless he's willing to do it too.
1: Yeah, but doesn't the five and thirty-six record pretty much effectively waive his no-trade clause? Don't you think that Melo no, wants to get out so of here? No, I don't think so at all. Now?
0: I think that he gets the leverage to say, "I want to go here," and also yeah. that means that the Knicks will be able, will get a much worse return in the trade because he can exert that power, and he obviously wants his new team to be as good as they can be. Presumably, though, he didn't do that when he went to the Knicks. He deliberately made the team worse by choosing to go when he went to get more money. So I don't know how much he really values that. But at the same time, you know, the the, the hard thing with Bellow is you can justify what he did. I mean, the Knicks made an offer they shouldn't have made. He got the money that he wanted. And if that was his priority, that was his priority. But what I hope, and I always hope this, it's the same thing with Kobe, is that you just own it, that you wear it. And if you do that, then... I'm going to be fine with it. I'm never going to knock somebody for taking 10 million more dollars a year. I can't do it. I'm not that person. I'm not I don't have the wherewithal. I don't have the ability to tell somebody you shouldn't do that. But at the same time, I can say that just own it. Just it, I chose the money. That was my decision and you could it doesn't matter if he admits it was a mistake or not. That that's immaterial, but that you just know that that's, it is what it is and we can all move on from there.
1: Yeah, I mean when I was criticizing him for taking the money, it's I, I mean, I don't criticize him for wanting more money. I mean, if I were his, in his position, I would take that money, but I would take the money in the best in a way that would benefit benefit me the most. Yeah. I look at it as that if I go to Chicago and I win a bunch of titles, I'm gonna make more money in endorsements and all sorts of other stuff and even championship bonuses and stuff like that. And I in the long run would probably out earn my thirty million bonus that or you know, bump that I'm getting by going to the Knicks. So I think it probably I I think that players might be a little bit short sighted when they want to go for the hometown max because they're if they, if they're going to go to a team that's not going to be that successful they probably could make more money off the court if they are more successful in the long run and Melo of course is a huge superstar so it's not like he isn't going to be able to attract more endorsement deals and stuff like that so. And, and of course, there's like royalties from all the stuff that from your winnings. And all, yeah, there, there's a lot. There's a lot of money to be made by winning an NBA title. And I mean, for him, it's really just a matter of what what does he want in his life? Does he want to be a great NBA legend, or does he want to be a society legend? And I think it's probably the latter for him. And whatever makes him happy in the end is what matters. I mean, he doesn't like nba players don't have to be great nba legends that we can all remember fondly some of them can just enjoy their lives and not really care too much about how the world remembers them exactly because maybe they don't care as much about how every other podcaster out there feels about them as much as i don't know how warren buffett feels about them as a businessman you know like there's people that watch basketball assume that every single player is out there to serve their need to enjoy basketball but those people are 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 all out there living their lives, and Carmelo Anthony is a guy that's out there living his life, trying to be the king in New York, and he is enjoying that a lot more than being remembered fondly as a great NBA player, or so I'm presuming, and and it's it's a it's a unfair presumption to make, and it's I'm not going to say it's absolutely official, but that's what the perception seems to be, and that's what matters for Melo is just whatever makes him and his family happy. And, and don't forget, his wife has a very successful career as well, and it seems to be pretty much based on being in New York and L.A., so that's another major factor there. And a lot of people have to choose their jobs based on their family and their spouse's work as well, and that's, that's what Melo might have done as well. So you know, being in New York, be, losing on, a, on his basketball team, that, might, that definitely has an impact on his life, but it might have less of an impact than it would for, say, Kevin Garnett, who basketball is life for him.
0: How crazy would it be if, what, right around when Kobe's expiring/slash retiring, if they either did a Melo for Kobe trade or the Knicks traded Melo to the Lakers right after Kobe retired, if they struck out on Durant?
1: I, I honestly think that could be the most likely outcome. I really I kind of do expect, if New York can't turn it around, I do expect Carmelo Anthony to be a Laker in a couple of years. The Lakers will pretty much use their cap space to absorb him. They'll probably throw in a pick here or there. I don't think the Lakers have a single player on the roster that the Knicks would want to take back, and the Knicks would just want to clear out their cap. So I wouldn't be surprised in 2016 if Carmelo is with the Lakers and Kobe's assistant coach or even head coach. And by the way, I would really hope that Kobe Bryant coaches Carmelo Anthony. That would be what Carmelo needs and would just be what America needs in general. But I mean, that that would work out really well, wouldn't it?
0: Are you saying that your dream is something other than Kobe and Shaq co-owning an NBA team? Because I don't think I can wish for anything more than that.
1: Well, no, Kobe and Shaq co-coaching. It would be the first co-head coaching uh, set up in the league. That would be really great.
0: What about J.R. Smith player coaching?
1: I mean, that, that would be pretty fun, I guess. I think that would be more fun than like soccer just because you know, in soccer it's like the manager doesn't have a lot of interaction with the team so it's really just him on the on the field controlling everything while in the NBA there's a little bit more player interaction so I, I'd like to see J.R. Smith and like soccer being a player manager but yeah that would probably if you, if you want to talk about what would be the most disastrous player coach in the league I'd say J.R. Smith would probably be number one
0: now now I really want to think about who I would have on that on that list I mean Lance would definitely be in the conversation yeah he'd be
1: right there yeah
0: and and Dion Waiters would probably be in the conversation too because Dion Waiters thinks that he's the best player on every team he's on. It seems like and that or at least he's a part part of the key of the best team. And considering he was on the Cavs and is now in the Thunder, that's a very fun thing to imagine.
1: Well, like with Dion Waiters, I'm I think it's going to bear out to see is he going to be J R Smith or is he going to be Jamal Crawford? Because like Smith and Crawford are pretty similar when they were younger. You know, they would have 40-point games once in a while. They were kind of head cases. They were uncontrollable. Crawford really got his stuff together, Well, Smith just never got it together. And, of course, Crawford's a little bit older than Smith, so Smith has some time. But in, in Crawford, it seemed like his career was kind of falling apart at one point, the way that Smith's is, before he got it back together. And now he's revered as one of the best six men around. But I feel like Waiters is going to be somewhere between those two guys because – as soon as he was drafted, it was very apparent that he was going to be a gunner that wasn't going to fit in too well in the NBA. Was a terrible choice next to Kyrie Irving, and there was no question in my mind that Harrison Barnes was the pick to make there, and they blew it so monumentally. I can't believe it, but um, you know, Waiters, Drummond. he's going <laughs> exactly, and you know what, Waiters, he's going to be a sixteen-point scorer a night. Uh, kind of guy, but he's just he's just not going to be a valuable player. He's not going to be an overall plus player on your t- on your team, and it's it worked out. I mean, OKC made the right move in getting him, and if they can get Brook Lopez, which we haven't even talked about yet, somehow I, I really really am scared that o- of OKC, and that could make them the best team in basketball if, if Lopez can stay healthy, but. You know, Dion Waiters is another is another one of those guys that just goes to show that if you're just a score in the NBA and that's all you can do, then you're no one's going to really want you and you're just not going to be a valuable player.
0: Two basic points when you were talking about yeah. the guys to compare him to. Mine is another Jay Crawford. I think he's mm. similar to Jordan Crawford in a lot of senses, that he's going to need the right coach, but that he's going to wear out his welcome. But I think he'll stay in the league longer than Jordan has. I think also think Jordan's going to be back in the league. The other thing that's funny is I was thinking about it because when you and I met was covering the 2012 draft and... I was thinking back on Drummond, and I don't know if you were there for this, but one of the one of my favorite conversations I've been a part of in terms of that kind of open press availability was somebody asked Drummond why he was so bad at free throws. And he went on this thing, and his basic answer was, I don't know, man. You know, like, I was good at him in high school, and for whatever reason, it fell apart. It's really funny to think about now That's like, it's a really honest answer, but at the same time, it's more than a little disconcerting.
1: Yeah, I mean Andre Drummond has gotten so big since he was like a like a sophomore in high school. I mean that's that could just be a a matter of just him kind of his hands kept getting bigger and bigger, and he lost control of his shot, or he just stopped practicing his free throws. Who knows? But you know that that happens with a lot of big guys where they're just too big. They it's the whole tennis ball or orange thing with Shaq that he talked about. You know, some big men just can't shoot free throws, and they get by and. That's uh, There's been a lot of great big men in NBA history that couldn't shoot free throws. I mean, Will Chamberlain was one of the best ever, and he couldn't hit a free throw to save his life. So, you know, th- that's, that's kind of just part of the game with the center. And I never have much of an issue with centers that can't hit free throws. They usually make up for it that it doesn't – it really makes a little impact for them.
0: Okay, question for you. If you could pick – it has to be realistic, so you can't, like, throw the Celtics in as the four seed or whatever. Hmm. But if you could pick any single – First round playoff matchup. What would you most want to see?
1: It, it actually could happen, but I think Golden State San Antonio probably be the top for me. I mean, really anything with Golden State. I, I really love their matchups against the Clippers, but it looks like the Clippers are gonna—they're not gonna fall that far down right now. Phoenix is a game and a half behind San Antonio for the eighth seed, but to see those two teams play each other would just be a blessing. I mean, honestly, it just two of the most beautiful offenses to watch in probably the last fifteen years or so. I love Golden State. I've been a huge Golden State fan ever since the uh, We Believe team and that Baron Davis dunk on Andre Kirilenko. That's still one of my favorite plays of all time. But th- this this new iteration of the Warriors is just so much fun to watch. And Steve Kerr has done such a tremendous job with this team. And it, it when, what really makes me appreciate Steve Kerr is how I, uh, some of these guys, especially Bogut, have been subtly coming out and taking shots at Mark Jackson. Meanwhile, in Cleveland, there's all these rumors that uh, Rich Paul is trying to put Mark Jackson in charge there, which would be amazing considering that Jackson just got run out of town in Golden State. But and you, you would definitely know more about that than I would. I like want to hear more from you about that right now, but. I love what Steve Kerr has done with this team. This Golden State team is pretty much—they're kind of epitomizing our hopes and dreams of what they could have, what they could be two years ago when they started this Steph Curry-focused team. And you look at how great of a player Clay Thompson is becoming, and which has been remarkable to see. I mean, Klay Thompson's really turning into a special player, and he's almost on Steph Curry's level at this point. But they—they they have put together such a great team, and to see the, the fact that they could handle spates filling in there for bogut i still can't believe how well that's working out most is becoming the player that we thought he could be five years ago and we kind of laughed at ourselves thinking wow most spates what a disappointment and now we're seeing what he's doing it's incredible
0: I can't believe you might bait me into talking about this, but to me, the the question with Mark Jackson is how much does he want to be an NBA coach? Because something that you and I both know, being around the league and all that, is that being an NBA coach and being an NBA assistant, is it's a lot of work, and it requires having a really thick skin, because you need to have smart voices around you, which is one of the biggest things that I will credit Steve Kerr with, is that Kerr had absolutely no problem having a lot of talent in his coaching ranks. He has guys who probably were, who were definitely more qualified to be the Warriors coach than him and Ron Adams and Alvin Gentry, and he, that he was able to put them in, and that the big difference between Mark Jackson and Steve Kerr is that Kerr took, I would say it's kind of the intellectual approach to it, and that is, okay, what is the best system I can build with the guys that we have? Whereas Mark Jackson's was, how can I put my system with these guys? And the hilarious part about Mark Jackson going to Cleveland is that's another team with lots of unique talent. And the worst thing you can do with unique talent is put them into a cookie-cutter box that was from the 80s or 90s when they didn't have those unique talents. Those Knicks teams were wonderful, and the Pacers teams were wonderful, but they didn't have those guys in the same sense. I mean, you could say Reggie, but Reggie wasn't Stephen Curry. Reggie wasn't LeBron James. And so his ethos is so opposing, and kind of diametrically so, what the Cleveland Cavaliers should do with Kevin Love, who is just this amazing talent who you can use in a lot of different ways, much less LeBron James, who is one of the more distinct stars in the history of the NBA.
1: Well, I mean, just starting with Mark Jackson, I've heard a lot about just Mark Jackson basically not kind of being maybe like a glorified representative of what an NBA coach should be, but he wasn't that legit of a coach. He was really, I, I've, I've heard some people tell me that he was really more of like a, just try to give you a rah, rah speech and not really do the work that was required to be a legitimate NBA coach and to run a legitimate NBA franchise. And a lot of players got tired of it that, cause it's kind of, I mean like that stuff kind of is BS and people see through it eventually. And especially when you're on a good team where these guys feel like they're getting held back by the coach. And I mean, I know that Mark Jackson's a preacher and everything that's kind of just as the way that he works on a fundamental level, but he, he, it sounds like he needed to kind of step up his act a little bit to be a, an NBA coach. And of course, when I try to talk to him at press conferences, I felt like I was talking to like a, to like an old record on repeat or something like that. I mean, he, you would try to ask him a question and he would give you like a dead eyed stare in the space and give you some sort of pre-written preacher line. And it was it was so aggravating. I mean, I didn't talk to him that much. So I'm sure you talked to him more than I did. But it just it seemed like it seemed like there was a lack of sincerity behind what he was doing that probably held him back more than anything.
0: Yeah, well, the issue with Mark is that he was a great leader of men. An absolutely Uh fabulous leader of men, but he wasn't the tactician or kind of coach in that sense that the Warriors team needed, and he didn't acknowledge that flaw by building a staff around him that could build with that weakness. And so that's how everything went, and I think for guys like Steph and and Clay and everybody, they were really mad when he left because they had developed a personal connection. He was important to them, and they he was and Mark Jackson was important to their development as human beings more so than as basketball players. But to me, what happened this year, and you saw it more with guys like Bogut, who had less positive relationships with Mark Jackson than Stephen Curry did, and also is way more open to being critical than Stephen Curry is because Curry's a yeah. pro dealing with the media, is that. I don't think they realized or appreciated that the tactical part, the development part is so much more important because you can have leaders on your team, but you can't really have tacticians in the same way. I mean, there are teams that have coaches on the floor. The Wizards have a couple now with Andre Miller, Paul Pierce, you know, you have Steve Nash for years was like that and you have those examples, but what they needed was that person who could make them do it. And the other thing is that, they had come from a place of such bad basketball that they were like, "Hey, we're playing really well, we're having a good time. We have this guy who who we like personally, and now they go, "Oh, this is what we could have been and so you see them and and you see the players talk about you know like how fun it is to play like this, and one of the things that you get when you cover the league and remember also that these are human beings is winning feels really good, and yeah. these are human beings, and if you imagine that you're a rare job where you can put your wins and losses on the court and you can put it on the newspaper every day. Most of us can't do that. That that really affects your life and it affects how you interact with other people that, you know, when you walk around the city that you live in, people will be like, hey, you know, because your team has only lost six games all year. So they I think that they never really had the opportunity to see the full picture and that has really opened them up to what they were missing but they could never appreciate cuz they never had it.
1: Well, so I mean I'm criticizing Mark Jackson as how he could be as an NBA coach, but the thing is is that Mark Jackson probably was the right guy for this team at the moment and that they needed someone to develop this team, right? And Mark Jackson is a is a is a people person. He's someone that he took Clay Thompson. He took Steph Curry. He made them feel comfortable with themselves. He made them not worried about the flaws in their game, but rather to enhance what's great about their game, which is shooting and all that stuff. And he made them great at what they do. And in turn, they got better overall as players. And maybe Mark Jackson, I mean, well, I'm not saying maybe. I see it as that Mark Jackson was the reason why they got to where they were getting. But Mark Jackson just wasn't – he was because you're right. You need to develop the team and then you need to take them over the top by building something great with them. And Mark Jackson is just not that guy and Steve Kerr is that guy and it's working perfectly for them. So they got the coach that they needed to develop the team, to get the players to learn how to be really good NBA players and believe in themselves. And it worked out really well for the most part. And then they got the guy that could really – that really has the, the ingenuity to take it home. And that's why Andrew Bogut wasn't happy because Andrew Bogut and Andre Godala are guys that are – they're well-established into their careers and they don't need some guy preaching at them, teaching them how to be NBA players. They already are those players. They're already two of the fiercest competitors in the league and that's what Curry and Thompson and Draymond Green and Harrison Barnes all needed. But the veterans obviously don't want that and now they're happy because they've got a guy in Kerr that they can relate to and that they think is smart enough to really put them over the top. And it's working because those guys that were developing, they're developed now and except for Draymond Green who's starting to kind of, we're, we're seeing he's starting to kind of explode through the ceiling of what we thought was his glass ceiling there. Um, but they are reaching a pinnacle that Jackson couldn't have brought them to and Steve Kerr probably is going to be able to bring them to. And the question is how much more can they grow? How healthy can Bogut stay? I mean, I know Bogut's back now. He's playing 25 minutes. He's not doing a ton of stuff yet, but it looks like he's probably going to be able to get back to being the 10-rebound, two-block-a-night guy that he was earlier in the year.
0: Yeah, I think that you hit on a lot of it. I would also—the big thing I would mention with why Mark Jackson was important is defense. I think that he instilled not only the kind of the knowledge of kind of what to do. I think a lot of his defensive system is still in place his defensive system, the defensive system that he was involved in installing, and also the idea that playing defense is, is really important, you know, that you need that as a component of winning, and then they got the talent in Andrew Bogut to surround it to make to make the effort part combine with the talent part, and that was always going to be necessary, so yeah, I think that you can make a really good argument that Jackson was a necessary component of this development, and he deserves that credit. But at the same time that's kind of a weird thing. It's kind of a weird credit to give because the he basically this it was going to have to happen and I'm happy it happened when it did. I honestly think it should have happened a year before to make the change, but it's hard to knock the process when the results are looking as good as they're going to be and the other question you talked about, you know how much better they can get is can they get better talent-wise because if they can add one or two small pieces, you know, let's say in the 6 to 8 spots in the rotation, they could be even better than they are right now and that's where the spurs are and the warriors are not is that ridiculous comical depth that you can do and if they can get one or two guys maybe one of your former former recoveries which is Kevin Garnett then that would be huge for this team
1: that would be huge cuz they got i mean they have Barbosa coming off the bench they have Sean Livingston Justin Holiday's getting some minutes for them too, right? He is. Yeah, he's
0: he's blown up. He. The shocking part about him is he originally got in the rotation because of his defensive versatility, which is a storyline with this team is that they can, in certain lineups, they can switch everything two to four or even one to four depending on how they play, or to five if they play Draymond at the five. So Holiday fits in with that defensively. But what happened is they put him in and he kept on hitting shots, and so. Or he's basically bumped Barbosa largely out of the rotation. Not entirely, but largely out of the rotation. And that's nice. I mean, it's nice to be able to get that guy. I don't think either Barbosa or Holiday is going to play very much in the playoffs. But you need those 10 minutes or 20 minutes a game, especially when you get in foul trouble, to do that. And when you think about a team like the Spurs, you know, that's what they're going to do. And it's exciting to see what they can But I still think there's one big move left in the Warriors if they want to do it. And the crazy one that I haven't shared, and I think it'll be fun with you because you and I have talked ridiculous trades like this before. Is I'm wondering if things really fall apart with the Cavs, if how what the Warriors would have to give up to get Kevin Love because I think they could do it without giving up Steph Clay, or Bogut. and that would be really fun or Draymond. That would be really fun.
1: No, if I'm the Cavs and it sounds like Kevin Love's committed to staying next year. I'm not trading Kevin Love unless I'm getting another star in return. I'd probably do it for Klay Thompson. I don't know if the cat, I don't think Klay Thompson would fit on the Cavs though, considering they already have LeBron and Kyrie, but they. I mean, if if I'm the Cavs, there's no way I'm moving Kevin Love right now. You're just not. He, he's he's a great player. He's only 25 or 26. There's no way he's getting traded again unless he tells a team I'm gonna I'm not gonna take my option. I'm gonna I'm probably gonna walk. So I don't see that happening. But you are right in that Golden State probably could use one more trade and. I don't think anybody wants David Lee anymore, but if they can move David Lee, that'd be great. Igudala is a guy that they could get away with moving, even though I still really like Igudala, even though he's having a down year. I know his PER is like ten right now, which is amazing. But there's no question, Draymond Green is the has replaced Igudala in that role. And Green, although Igudala is a better offensive player, Green is just so such an unbelievable all around player. He could play any position on the court. It's it's incredible to see. And then Harrison Barnes is kind of turning into what Andre Iguodala was, and Harrison Barnes might become Andre Iguodala. So they don't have much of a need for him anymore, and they don't they don't want to trade Andrew Bogut. But if if they could get another center instead of Andrew Bogut, that might that might make sense for them. Bogut fits in really well with this team. But Bogut definitely is limited and his health is always going to be a question mark. And if they lose Bogut, they're not going to survive in the playoffs again. It's just it's just not going to happen. They're not going to win without him there. They need that great defensive anchor at center. And as much as I like Maurice Spates, and I'm really excited to see him playing good basketball for the first time ever, he's just not going to be the center that gets it done for them in the playoffs if they really want to win the title. So if they can make a move for another center, I don't really see a center out there that's worth making a move for. I don't think they want Roy Hibbert, but but Hibbert's probably the only other guy out there that I think could make sense for them. They, they probably should make that move.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think there's there's something there. I, I really love Bogut with this team. I think that he fills a very specific role offensively and defensively. But yeah, I mean, they definitely have that potential. Well, uh, thanks so much for taking the time and enjoy a, a Sunday football. This will come out after that, but it should be a fun day anyway.
1: Uh, thanks so much, man. That was a lot of fun.
0: Take care, man. Thanks again to Jared Weiss for taking the time to come on. You can listen to him on the Garden Report post-game show, and he also covers the Celtics for CLNS Radio and Celtics Blog. And you can also follow him on Twitter at CLNS underscore Jared Weiss, J-A-R-E-D-W-E-I-S-S. I I really liked having him on because it's fun to talk about the Celtics and to get into things like that with somebody who really knows that team. I'm hoping to do that a lot more. I'd like to do the Hawks at some point in the near future, maybe do the Raptors too, and... I've done the Warriors so much that I'll probably try to hit somebody like Portland in the Western Conference and OKC, obviously, at some point. So if you have any guest ideas, I always appreciate that. Or any other comments, you can hit me up on Twitter at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. Or you can email me at Daniel.LaRue at RealGM.com. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.